This is R.J. Rushtuni, Easy Chair Number 139, February the 12th, 1987. I'd like to begin by going back to something that I was on the periphery of a good many years ago, at the beginning of the 60s. At that time, I was with the William Volcker Fund, a foundation which in its day was of major importance and did a great deal. I won't go into that now, but it did have uh, grants out at one time to as many as 500 scholars. I was one of them, a messianic character of American education, and the uh, one and the many were written on grants from them. I also served in the offices for a time as a consultant. One of the very interesting projects they were involved in had to do with the Korean War. You may recall that uh, it was at that time that the concept of brainwashing was popularized. Now brainwashing has become a myth in the modern world. We hear about how the various cults supposedly brainwash people. This is nonsense. Anyone who is converted to something that uh, people do not approve of is spoken of as having been brainwashed. And so today we have deprogrammers, so-called, uh, really kidnappers who are engaged in lawless acts, who will deprogram someone because he has become a Mooney, or because he has become a Christian, or uh, is a Catholic who's become a Protestant, or a Protestant who's become a Catholic, and so on. Endless variations of this kind of deprogramming. But brainwashing is a myth. When I was at Volcker, a major study was underway which was remarkable in the data it turned up. In charge of it was an army doctor who had dealt with the supposedly brainwashed veterans, the brainwashed prisoners of war in Korea. Had the Chinese brainwashed them in the camps? The answer is no, emphatically no. And it's a pity that the data was suppressed. It was very embarrassing data for the United States. It was certainly an indictment of the people of this country. But it was very important for the public to know what that data was all about. When Americans were taken prisoners in the Korean War. In the interrogation of each prisoner, besides name, rank, and serial number, two harmless questions were routinely asked. The purpose of one question was to determine whether or not they were Christians, and the second question had as its purpose the determination of their economic outlook. Did they believe in the free market economy? Now, if they had strong Christian convictions, 
and strong convictions about a free market economy, they were immediately segregated and put into uh, prisoner of war camps surrounded by barbed wire and very carefully uh, guarded. They were not mistreated. But what they knew was that these were the people who had the potentiality for leadership. These were the people that could not be converted from their position. Moreover, even though these men were well guarded and were behind barbed wire, high fences, these were the prisoners of war who did try to escape and at times succeeded in escaping. These people Namely, those who had a Christian faith, a strong Christian faith, not a nominal church membership, and who believed in the workings of the free market economy and had strong convictions there, made up roughly about 15% of the American prisoners of war. The others, roughly about 85%, ranging from private to general, at least in one instance, were put in a very different type of uh, prisoner of war camp. They were placed in uh, villages of Koreans. The natives had been driven out of the village, and these prisoners were placed there. There was no fence around the village, only a few guards posted here and there. Thus, it would have been easy for them to walk away from those prisons, but no one ever tried to do so. Why? Because they were leaderless. Even though they had high-ranking officers among them, they were leaderless because they were men without a strong, a vital faith. The result was anarchy. What the Chinese did to these prisoners of war was to provide them with the huts and then with lumber to build latrines and other things that were necessary. These American prisoners of war could not organize to build a latrine. They simply defecated and urinated all over the outside area of their particular hut. The place became so foul that the Chinese found it unpleasant to walk in there three times a day to bring them food. So they came in and cleaned up the camp, and they built the latrines. Moreover, these American prisoners of war were incapable of caring for each other. They were anarchistic. In one very ugly episode, on a very cold night, when one was very ill and was dirtying himself, the others angrily threw him out of the hut to freeze to death in the cold winter weather. 
All they thought about was themselves. Now this was the devastating aspect of this report. How high a percentage of the American soldiers, officers, and others were incapable of manifesting any true faith that gave them a focus, that gave them the capacity for leadership. Well, the Chinese, after a time, came into the camps and had indoctrination courses. These were not any psychological brainwashing sessions. They were simply sessions where they tried to teach them about Marxism, to indoctrinate them against Christianity and similar things. Lacking faith, lacking the capacity to focus on anything, these American soldiers listened and to be agreeable, they went along with their guards. They wrote papers to please them because they did not believe in anything. And therefore, it was a simple matter for them to say yes to anything. Today, we have people like that walking the streets and therefore open to any kind of influence, political, religious, societal, or otherwise, because they do not have a governing faith. This was the result, then, of the research into the so-called brainwashing in Korea. It's unfortunate that the results were suppressed. We have the myth of brainwashing. People believe that there is such a thing as brainwashing that is done and can occur. But all that the Korean experience revealed was that people without faith are readily suggestible. They are leaderless. They can be easily commanded by any idea because their mind is so empty any breeze of opinion can blow through. Now, I bring this up because I read something both grim and amusing uh, in the U.S. News and World Report for February 16, 1987, which arrived, I believe, yesterday. On page 6, there's an article about the Mafia Mystique. And there was something in it that uh, was very, very interesting. The writer says, and I quote, the mafia mystique has reached such a level that art is often mistaken for reality, folklore for fact. At the recent Pizza Connection trial, actors were engaged by the court to read transcripts of testimony because the defendant's Sicilian dialect was not understand, understood by the jury. In turn, 
the real gangsters began to fulfill the television and film stereotypes. U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani says there is a distinct difference in the wiretaps of Italian-American criminals before and after the film The Godfather. Many, Giuliani says, began to sound like the characters in the film. On the tapes, the theme from the music, uh, from the movie, can be heard in the background. Unquote. Now, I think that is hilarious. After viewing The Godfather, the mafia men, the leaders, began to imitate it, talk like the figures in the movie, fell in love with the theme music from the movie, and began to play it over and over again so that it became background music so they could put themselves in the mood of playing the role. Well, that's what brainwashing is about. The film, The Godfather, brainwashed the mafia leaders, the mafia members. Now this leads me to a very important point. We hear a great deal about the pros and cons of movies, of television, and their influence on people. Do they or do they not influence people? Well, obviously if they influence mafia characters, they're going to influence a great many children and adults. But remember the data from the Korean War. If you are a part of those who believe, who have a faith that is no, more than nominal, you have a faith that governs your life, nothing else is going to govern you. What is hypnotism about? Hypnotism simply means that people who are suggestible can be captured by another person. You cannot hypnotize a person with a strong faith. This is why, as one scholar some years ago remarked, public education was a precondition for Mussolini's real power in fascist Italy. As long as the people had a simple Catholic faith, they were not suggestible. They could not be readily captured by Mussolini's rhetoric. But once having seized power, statist education was promoted in a more rigorous fashion than ever before. A generation was produced that could listen and be captured by the mind of another. This is what humanistic education has done to people the world over. They are open to hypnotic suggestion. They are open to any wind of doctrine, to any false idea, to movie, to television ideas. 
They do not have a systematic outlook or faith. And the result is deadly. So we need to recognize the importance of a faith that governs us. A faith that enables us to see everything in focus. Unless we have that kind of faith, we are going to be suggestible. Children are suggestible precisely because they have not matured in terms of a faith for their lives. And this is why public school education is so deadly for children. It leaves them wide open to humanism. It's no wonder we have a generation that can live with the kind of economics we have today, the kind of politics we have, which votes in terms of a father figure or some kind of image rather than in terms of reality. The absurdities that come out of our current political scene, in fact, in every country out of the current political scene, should be enough to cause the fall of the governments of our time, the civil governments. But people are indifferent to them. They treat all this nonsense as incidental when the nonsense is basic to the life of the modern state. Let me cite one little uh, incident for you from Private Solutions put out by the National Center for Privatization. It's a little incident about the change a few months ago from Daylight saving time back to standard time. I quote, When the country returned to standard time last fall, Amtrak, as if its trains customarily run on time, corrected for the one-hour clock resetting by shutting down all service from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. No, you still don't understand. They stopped the trains wherever they happened to be at two o'clock in the morning. One bewildered train full of passengers found themselves sitting in the Colorado Rockies for an hour. God forbid if they had arrived at their destination early. Unquote. Well, I submit that that is symptomatic of so much that is routine today in every civil government the world over. But people don't see the absurdity of life around them because they are a product of a faithless culture, a culture where men do not have the strength of a governing faith. And therefore, they are governed by the faith of an elite, a humanistic elite. And they're worthless. They become a part of the scrap heap of history and time. Every culture, 
that loses a governing faith in the hearts and minds of a sizable number of the people soon loses its right to exist. Well, now on to another subject. One of the very important books published lately is a study by Donald G. Bloch, B as in boy, L-O-E-S-C-H, The Battle for the Trinity, The Debate Over Inclusive God Language, put out by Servant Publications in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in 1985. The address of uh, Servant Books is P.O. Box 8716. It's a very important book, extremely important. It's about the drive by feminists to change the wording of the Bible so that the masculine character of the references to the Godhead will be removed so that God can become an it or a she, preferably a she. However, it's more than an analysis of what these people are trying to do. It is, as Dr. Bush points out, an attempt to subvert every trace of scholarly honesty and to make it subject to current notions because it's very clear that the Bible uses the masculine when it speaks of the Godhead. So, to turn the Bible into a propaganda piece for feminists is certainly absurd. However, there are a couple of driving motives behind it. One is Gnosticism. He speaks of the very deep affinity between modern feminism and Gnosticism. For the Gnostics, bisexuality was an expression of perfection, and therefore the Godhead had to be both male and female, and the true person had to be, in effect, a hermaphrodite. The Gnostics, therefore, did everything they could to subvert the kind of faith that Christianity, a young faith, represented. Gnosticism has had a major revival in such figures as Heidegger, the philosopher, Jung, Freud's associate, Paul Tillich, and a number of other theologians. As a result, these people are very prone to try to subvert the biblical revelation in terms of Gnostic presuppositions. Moreover, as Bloch writes, and I quote, feminist theology is only the tip of the iceberg. It is only one manifestation of the resurgence of the pre-Christian gods of ancient mythology, the gods of the barbarian tribes, as they seek to make a comeback in a time when our culture languishes in a metaphysical vacuum, unquote. 
He documents this at a very great length. But this is not all. The uh, feminists have uh, worked to revive the ancient goddess religions, Canaanite goddess worship, Baalism. And Baal worship and feminism have a great deal in common. So that today we are seeing a resurgence of precisely those things that are condemned throughout the Old Testament as particularly anathema to God. The feminists present woman as a divinity. They have an androgynous view of God. They insist that we must rewrite scripture in terms of their pagan beliefs. Well, it is, as I say, a very, very telling book, and I strongly commend it to your attention. Then another book, this one was sent to me by one of you. Joseph J. Korn, C-O-R-N-E, The Winged Gospel, America's Romance with Aviation, 1900 to 1950. This one was published in 1983 by the Oxford University Press. It's simply a history of aviation, of flight. The significance of it is, though, that it tells us something that many of us have forgotten. Regularly, when some great invention has come along, people have pinned all kinds of hopes on it, as though something mechanical offered salvation for the world's problems. This is the reason for the title, The Winged Gospel. The number of people who felt that uh, the development of the airplane would bring in utopia, it would improve people's health, refine their aesthetic sensibilities, and even eliminate war, was legion. People were ready to say that there would in time be a plane in every garage. So, all kinds of mythology developed around the plane. We've forgotten it now as we've forgotten all kinds of like things. By the way, I have a recollection that Nobel, who developed uh, some of the fundamentals of modern munitions, believed his work was going to help end war, <laughs> which uh, may be one reason why he left an estate towards giving peace prizes, because he felt peace was going to come in the future. Well, so much for this kind of mythology. It's very much with us. It's a part of our world. People look to everything except Christ for salvation. They dream of impossible solutions. They have no sense of reality as far as 
the world is concerned. And the results are devastating for us because their hope is not geared to reality. I think we need to recognize how deeply rooted this kind of uh, desire is. Uh, gimmicks as the solution, and hence the United Nations. There is no hope for the future in terms of this kind of thinking. Art has become a substitute for religion. And as a result, art, which is extremely important from a religious perspective, and when art is governed by a Christian faith, very important, is today a hindrance and a detriment because it has become a substitute for religion, for that which should govern it. I was just discussing the winged gospel by Joseph J. Korn and the hope that people had, a messianic hope in aviation. We should remember that this kind of thing marked the French Revolution also. When the French Revolution occurred, because monarchs were overthrown, People who were anti-monarchistic the world over believed that the millennium was about to begin, that perhaps Christ was going to return at any moment, and sermons were preached all over the world, especially the Western world, of course, by people who felt the new age had begun, and it took only the reign of terror to disillusion some and others not at all they continued to believe that the French Revolution offered man a better way well now I'm going on to another book a very very interesting and important book by Dr. Malachi Martin the Jesuits the Society of Jesus and the Betrayal of the Roman Catholic Church. Published by Simon and Schuster in New York, 1987, and the price is 19.95. This is a very, very important book. Dr. Martin is an eminent Catholic theologian, a former Jesuit and professor at the Vatican's Pontifical Biblical Institute and was very close to, I believe, three popes. In this he describes the capture of the Jesuit order as well as other sections of the church by modernism and what their goals are and what it is they are doing. It's a very blunt, hard-hitting and thoroughly honest account by a very, very conservative Catholic thinker. One of the things that uh, he deals with at length is the relationship of the Jesuits to liberation theology. I quote from page 309. Both of these promises, that is, freedom from Rome's outworn theology and participation with the people of God in the enterprise of social evolution and revolution were encased in the term liberation. 
It was not lost on Guterres and his sympathizers and champions that liberation itself was a traditional Catholic term, or that its Catholic meaning had always been a freeing from those moral deficiencies that prevented an individual from pleasing God and attaining eternal life, primarily according to traditional Catholic teaching. Christ effected this liberation by his sufferings and death and resurrection. Traditionally, in other words, liberation is a spiritual liberation of individuals, groups, nations, races, and all human beings so that all will be eligible for eternal life with God after death. The liberation of the new theology, on the other hand, was specifically a freeing from political oppression, economic want, and misery here on earth. More specifically still, it was freeing from political domination by the capitalism of the United States. In the eyes of the liberation theologians, the endemic want and misery of Latin America, together with its political domination by strong-arm leaders and monopolistic oligarchies, were directly the fault of capitalism, American capitalism. The most specific, immediate, and practical aim of liberation theology, therefore, the very core of its mission, became the liberation of Latin Americans from oppression by Yankee transnational capitalistic domination, unquote. Martin gives the best account I have seen of what is happening in Latin America and the relationship of the churches to it. Let me add to that it is not only the Jesuits, the Marinos, and other like groups, but Protestant missionaries. In fact, many of the Mosquito Indians, who are a basic part of the Contras, are evangelicals. They were converted in the last century by the Moravians, and today Moravian missionaries speak favorably of the Marxist regime in Nicaragua and betray their own people, the Mosquito Indians. This, of course, is not unusual. About a year and a half ago, I had a visit from a pastor high up in the mountains in Mexico, I think at about 9,000 feet elevation. And he said they had broken with the missionaries who had previously worked with them. And the reason was that these missionaries, coming from a supposedly very dedicated, thoroughly biblical church, were Marxists. When they protested to the mission board, the board sent a group to meet with them and with the missionaries and vindicated the missionaries and refused to answer the Indians. So the Indian church broke with the mission. Well, Malachi Martin tells you not only what happened in uh, Nicaragua, but elsewhere, why it is happening, the role of the church, 
a central one in the revolution. And the dishonesty of both the media and of missionaries by and large in dealing with the facts. For example, I quote from page 314. Formerly the British Crown Colony known as British Guiana, this equatorial lowland of 83,000 square miles with a population of 900,000 is perched on the northeast shoulder of South America. In May of 1966, Forbes Burnham took this tiny country to independence under its new name, Guyana. By 1985, every sector of government was in sharp decline. The population and the economy suffered from government monopolies, brain drain, fraud, and corruption in high places and social disturbances. The totalitarian methods of the Burnham government and the presence of Cuban and East European advisors produced widespread stagnation, discontent, and want. Many died of starvation in a country where wages were generally less than $3 a day, where a loaf of bread cost $6, and where there was nearly a total lack of essential medical services. But in this country, where the people suffer from political oppression and social deprivation, we do not hear from liberation theologians. Guyana is not held up as an example of a people needing liberation. Why? That liberation theologians have chosen not to apply their answers in Guyana is explained by two simple facts. First, Burnham's government is already a Marxist government, and second, the problems that bedevil Guyana also bedevil Nicaragua, where liberation theology with its Marxist base, its priestly contingent of collaborators, and its ideological mission of class struggle is of manifest failure by all economic and political standards, while theological by theological, religious, and moral standards, it is a disaster, unquote. Let me add that it is not only Nicaragua and Guyana and Suriname. We have the presence of Libyan advisors to run things. But does the press tell you about that or other like problems? Not at all. All it deals with is to criticize those who tend to oppose or to reveal these facts. Martin's book is a hard-hitting one. He tells you about the Freemasonry connection now on the part of some churchmen, how one bishop, for example, today begins his services, his Sunday sermons, with a clenched fist raised in salute and the defiant cry of the Communist International, declaring, I am a Marxist. He speaks of the likelihood of Soviet plants in the Vatican, the new views of liturgy, 
and much, much more. Very telling book. And throughout, not only a history, but important insights. Insights that are important not only to Catholics, but to Protestants. He says, for example, that what we see with these liberation theologians is more than simply bad theology. It is theology at the service of economics and overshadowed by a prejudice against capitalism. The book is important for those who want to know what is happening today. And it is a thoroughly honest and telling account. Now to another work, very, very grim reading. Paul and Shirley Eberly, E, B as in boy, E, R, L, E. A book published by Lyle Stewart in Secaucus, New Jersey, Secaucus, S-E-C-A-U-C-U-S, in 1986. For 1795, the book is about the fraudulent cases of child abuse. The fact that child abuse is increasing is true. But about 75% of the cases reported are fraudulent. They are the cases that are persecuted, prosecuted, innocent people brought up in charges, the power of social workers and others increased. And we have an assault on the family in the name of preventing child abuse. This has been made possible by a change in federal legislation. And it is interesting that uh, Walter Mondale was responsible for it. In 1974, the Mondale Act was passed by Congress, a law which provides huge federal grants to states if they pass mandatory reporting laws. So virtually every state passed these laws requiring a mandatory reporting of anything that seemed to resemble child abuse or child molestation. So, as uh, one expert who is quoted says, one of these child abuse agencies got a $2 million grant because they created a child molestation case with lots of victims and lots of suspects, all of them innocent, but they're all facing prison terms. None of the children said they were molested, and they talked uh, until they talked with the interviewers. And so on and on, extensively documented. This is something that is becoming a major cause for concern. The National Monitor of Education, a very excellent report put out by Betty Aras, A-R-R-A-S, P.O. Box 402, Alamo, 
California, 94207. And the November 1986 number has a, a report on a grandmother who was accused of the sexual molestation of her six-year-old granddaughter. There was no reason whatsoever for the filing of such a charge. It was one of the instances of uh, a power move. It, it, they, uh, it's so fantastic that I'm, I find it unable to uh, read and report on. But this is the kind of thing that is increasingly routine. The legitimate, legitimate cases treated casually. The manufactured cases increasing because they are means of increasing status power. Now on to something else very briefly. A very interesting pamphlet sent to me is entitled Secrets of the Titanic. And it includes some very interesting quotes when the Titanic began this statement from one of the sailors God himself could not sink this ship and another from the captain Edward J. Smith I cannot conceive of any condition that would make this ship founder and it foundered of course and sank on its first voyage so much for the pride of man. Well, now on to another book, an interesting book about uh, early America by Ruth H. Block, B-L-O-C-H, Visionary Republic, Millennial Themes in American Thought, 1756 to 1800, published by the Cambridge University Press in 1985. There is a point here that uh, is exceedingly important, a critical one, that uh, Dr. Bach calls attention to, and the book is worth just this single insight. Why was it that Protestantism gave rise to not only millennial aspirations, but also a tremendous amount of very practical Christian activity? Why was it that uh, there was such a tremendous drive to go out and bring one area of life after another into captivity to Christ. The medieval world had done some remarkable things in this area, and then its interest had wandered off to other areas. But a particular drive came in, and one will have to add that especially so 
uh, with post-millennialism, which was very powerful in the early years of this country. The point that Dr. Block makes is this. The reformers, I'm quoting, the reformers like Augustine, concentrated on the fallibility of humanity and the corruption of earthly existence. In their view, even fully moral people were unworthy of salvation. Grace came only as the free gift of an utterly inscrutable God. But the Protestant abolition of traditional devotional works, monasteries, and the sacred priesthood at the same time made the world the only possible arena for the expression of grace. Even predestinarian Calvinists admitted there was a connection between behavior and redemption, for activity in the world was a sign, if not a source, of grace. She goes on to point out that in the work of transforming the world from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God, the faithful could see themselves directly manifesting the glory of God. And so on. The point is that here was a tremendous motive force to apply the word of God to every area of life and thought, to go out and conquer in Christ's name. Because this practical expression of grace was the means whereby a man's grace could be expressed. If you were saved, you put that grace to work. What has happened, of course, since then is that Protestantism has taken the same turn that late medieval thought did. It has put its stress on devotional exercises as the expression of grace. Early medieval life, whether monastic or non-monastic, was dominion-oriented. It did remarkable things. The dikes of Holland were first built. The first drainage of land was begun by monks. Desert areas would be given to the church and to monks so that the monks could go in there, clear the land, bring in water, level the land, and make it fertile. So much wasteland in Europe is not wasteland now, precisely because Christians changed it. They made the desert places to boom, to bear fruit, to become fertile. Well, this is what the Calvinists did, and other groups as well, until pietism took over as it did late medieval life and the emphasis became devotional and with that stagnation set in and the humanists began to take over 
In the remaining minutes, I want to turn now to something else. When I was in Washington, D.C. recently, I had an opportunity to see again a friend who was here not too long ago in the late summer, early fall. Jose Gonzalez, who is the head of SEMILLA, S-E-M-I-L-L-A, an organization serving Latin American Christians. If you want to know what uh, is happening in Nicaragua and elsewhere, write to SEMILLA. Send them a gift, please and ask for the Nicaragua File, Volume 1, Number 1, Winter 1987. Write to SEMILLA, Number 1, Constitution Avenue, Portsmouth, P. S. and Paul, O-R-T-S-M-O-U-T-H, Virginia, 23704. He will tell you about the persecution of Protestants and Catholics. He will tell you of the fact that Americans who go there, Christian and non-Christian, are so easily fooled. How ready they are to listen to lies. For example, on page 12, J. Michael Waller has an article about Borgia, who is the head of the Nicaraguan uh, police state, the K- their KGB. Internationally, however, he is hailed as a very wonderful man, a Christian. He sits in his office, Waller writes, listening intently to the group of American religious activists who came to Managua to show their solidarity with the revolution Handmade crucifixes decorate one wall and a large wooden statue of Christ carved by Nicaraguan artisans is conspicuously present. Borgia often quotes the Bible when he talks with the Americans. This is the Tomas Borgia that American religious activists know. Joyce Holliday of Witness for Peace calls him a good Christian. After the Americans leave, Borgia bursts into laughter, slapping his side and bragging about how he has deluded the group. Borgia makes fun of them in front of his subordinates, calling the Christians useful fools. The duped Americans return home with high praises for the Sandinista revolution that Tomas Borgia has dreamed of since his training in Cuba 25 years ago. Unquote. Borgia, by the way, has told Playboy that he is a communist. One of his uh, closest lieutenants defected recently and has told this story and the fact that Borgia has to have a, a special psychiatric services for his own officials because the tortures they inflict break them down. Now, I want to urge you to write for the Nicaragua file and also 
to write to CERT, C-E-R-T, the Christian Emergency Relief Team, P.O. Box 516, Carlsbad, California, 92008. Their telephone, 619-729-1136. The refugees from Nicaraguan persecution, the Mosquito Indians, for example, are in the border area between Nicaragua and Honduras. They are almost 100% ailing with some kind of ailment or another. The only way they can get supplies to them is in shoeboxes that are carried by canoe. And this group, CERT, is doing that. Write to them to find out how you can help. Your own family can take things and put them in a shoebox or several shoeboxes and send them. Things like toothbrushes, toothpaste, soap, socks, knives, candles, salt, dry beans, rice, bouillon cubes, and so on. So please do right. When our Lord speaks in the parable of the judgment that I was naked in prison, hungry and oppressed, and you knew me not, or you knew me. What he says, it's not enough for you to say, I really feel for the Christians who are suffering all over the world. He says, what are you doing about it? Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. When items put into a shoebox and sent to cert can help save the lives of children and adults, the Lord is going to ask you, why didn't you do it? And when you can send a few dollars to Samia and get the Nicaragua file and find out what's happening to your fellow believers of whom Christ is going to say, have you done it to them? You'd better do it. Thank you. My time is over. God bless you all.